This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. The Kyoto Prize is an international award that honors individuals who have contributed significantly to the scientific, cultural, and spiritual betterment of humankind. It is given each year by the Inamori Foundation, which was founded in 1984 with the initial private funds of Dr. Kazuo Inamori, founder and chairman emeritus of Kyocera Corporation. The foundation awards three prizes annually in the following fields. Advanced technology. Basic sciences. And arts and philosophy. Each year, the Kyoto Prize Symposium is held in San Diego, California, with attendees arriving from all over the world. The annual three-day event kicks off with a celebratory gala evening attended by many of San Diego's academic, corporate, and philanthropic leaders. Following a ceremonial procession, the gala audience learns about the current year's laureates' extraordinary achievements and then hears briefly from each. Another highlight of the evening is hearing from select recipients of the Kyoto Prize Scholarships, which are funded by gala proceeds. These impressive high school students from San Diego and Tijuana have been inspired to pursue a college education in one of the three Kyoto Prize categories. I would like to use my creative writing skills to help special needs kids, particularly through special education. My youngest brother, Remy, is a severely autistic and hemophiliac, so he's been the one to give me the desire and the empathy to help special needs students um, advocate for themselves and realize their potential to the fullest extent. So I started a program on my robotics competition team at my school um, that brings programming outreach to, you know, underserved and low-income um, middle and elementary schools around San Diego County. As a freshman in high school, I co-founded 501c3 nonprofit All-Girls STEM Society with the goal of creating a fun, encouraging, hands-on learning platform for girls to explore their interests in STEM. Since our founding in 2015, we've reached 2,800 participants from over 240 schools in 25 school districts across San Diego. The symposium continues on the campuses of Point Loma Nazarene University and the University of California, San Diego. Free public presentations, lectures, and workshops by the latest Kyoto Prize laureates and esteemed scholars in the laureates' fields attract the region's best and brightest, as well as hundreds of high school students from Tijuana and Southern California. During their stay in San Diego, the laureates also meet with the symposium's key sponsors, providing these supporters the unique opportunity to interact with remarkable luminaries who have changed the world we live in. This prestigious event shines an international spotlight on San Diego, exemplified by our cities hosting each year's Kyoto Prize laureates, an honor which is shared outside of Japan only with Oxford University in Europe. Creating a global audience in the thousands for virtual presentations by the laureates. The more than 10,000 high school and college students from San Diego and Tijuana who have attended Kyoto Prize Symposia and the awarding of close to $4 million in scholarships to high school students in the region. The Kyoto Prize Symposium elevates San Diego as a scientific, technology, and cultural leader 
and helps reinforce our region's rising prominence on the world stage. In the words of Dr. Inamori, human beings have no higher calling than to strive for the greater good of humanity and society. San Diego is honored to play a role in this noble mission. Kazuo Inamori believed that a human being has no higher calling than to strive for the greater good of humanity and the world. With that tenet, he established the Inamori Foundation in 1984 with an endowment of 20 billion yen of his own money. Since its inception in 1985, the Kyoto Prize, an international award named after Japan's original thousand year capital and cultural center, has been awarded to individuals and groups who have made extraordinary contributions in the fields of sciences, arts, technology, and philosophy. Dr. Inamori believed that with the proper balance of scientific advancement and a deep spiritual understanding, the future of humanity would be bright and long lasting. The Kyoto Prize is an extension of that belief and is now recognized as one of the most prestigious international prizes of its kind. The Inamori Foundation and the Kyoto Prize cement Kazuo Inamori's philanthropic legacy and will continue to do so throughout the future. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Institute of the Americas at the University of California. On behalf of the University of California, San Diego, I'd like to welcome you to campus as part of the Kyoto Prize Symposium. My name is Melanie Cruz. I'm an Associate Vice Chancellor here at UC San Diego, and I send warm regards from our Chancellor and our Executive Vice Chancellor, who also welcome you to campus. I've worked closely with the Kyoto Prize Symposium for several years. I think we're getting close to two decades now. And it's really an opportunity to welcome some of the world's brightest scholars, humanitarians, who are all here to share a little bit about their personal journeys, seminal discoveries with our community today. The spirit of collaboration, interconnectedness, and benefit to society is definitely shared by the Inamori Foundation, Dr. Inamori's. Legacy and is closely tied to the mission at UC San Diego. I would like to take the opportunity to recognize our tremendous friends from the Inamori Foundation, President Inamori Kanazawa. She is here today. Thank you. And Senior Managing Executive Director, Mr. Himono, and the rest of the Inamori Foundation team. Thank you. We also have friends from Kyoto Prize, not just the Kyoto Prize Symposium、uh, and the Inamori Foundation, but also Kyocera International and Kyocera North America, which is headquartered here in San Diego. We are really proud to be the only U.S. designated site to celebrate the Kyoto Prize, and it's in close proximity to our relationship with Kyocera.、Um, 
a, a really interesting connection, not just between uh, our geographic connection, but also our history. Kyocera International was started in 1959 uh, when Dr. Inamori was 27, which is really an accomplishment in terms of an entrepreneur. Um, so in 1959, Kyocera was born. In 1960, UC San Diego was born. Uh, so we, we do share a, a spirit of innovation. Uh, we're young, scrappy, and smart. Um, here at UC San Diego, we were an experimental campus, and between 1960 to now, we've become one of the top 20 research public institutions in the nation. So we hope you enjoy your time here, but also remember, we're an education institution, we're one of the largest employers in San Diego County, and we're also a provider of health care, so we hope you consider UC San Diego for any of those needs. We are very lucky to have with us uh, our extraordinary Kyoto Prize laureates. So earlier today, if you were here, you would have heard from Dr. Carver Mead, who is here today as well. Uh, he's a renowned engineer, and uh, you'll be able to listen to his uh, video later on as part of UC San Diego Today, uh, UCSD TV. Uh, today, we're going to hear from Dr. Brian Granfield, and also later on in the Kyoto Prize Symposium, Dr. Zakhar Hussein, who's a renowned musician. Uh, these are really great, great, extraordinary people in their field, and we have a wonderful opportunity to have real count access to these individuals. We're also very fortunate we would not be here today without our friends at the Kyoto Symposium Organization. So we have directors Rod Lanthorn and Executive Director uh, Dick Davis. Thank you so much for joining us today. One of the fun things about having extraordinary scholars come to campus is a lot of times they have experts and colleagues in the field. Uh, so today we're going to hear about a renowned uh, biologist. So in order to do that, we have one of our experts here to help with the conversation. I'd like to welcome distinguished biologist, the chair of the Richard C. Atkinson Endowed Chairholder, and dean of one of the largest areas on campus, Dean Kit Pagliano. Hi, everyone, and welcome. It's really a pleasure to see everyone here today at this celebration. And I am Kit Poliano, Dean of the School of Biological Sciences at UC San Diego. First, I'd like to thank all of the members of the audience for coming and attending this lecture today. We should have a really interesting presentation and a discussion afterwards as well. And I'd also like to thank the Kyoto Prize Symposium Planning and Organization Committee for bringing all of us together um, and to recognize this year's esteemed Kyoto Prize recipients. So thank you so much for all of your work. I'm very pleased today to introduce Dr. Justin Meyer, who is serving as the host professor for Dr. Brian Grenfell today, who is the 2022 Kyoto Prize Laureate in Basic Science. Dr. Meyer is a professor in the School of Biological Sciences and in the Department of Ecology, Behavior, and Evolutionary Biology, he joined by uh, UC San Diego in 2014 after um, receiving his PhD from Michigan State University and then being a systems biology departmental fellow at Harvard University, where he was awarded the James S. McDonnell Foundation Fellowship for studying complex systems. The complex systems that uh, Dr. Meyer studies um, are viruses and how specifically how viruses evolve to infect new species. This has really obvious implications in 
today's COVID era. And the systems that Dr. Meyer studies are phage and bacterial systems, and he's seeking to understand how how these two different species interact and how you can learn, um, apply these principles and findings to make phage therapy more effective and just how to understand complex interactions between species. Justin is also an accomplished scientific communicator who teaches a very well-received class in the evolution of infectious disease. Um, and he also um, was one of our faculty stars in a deep look into, the, into COVID-19 that won a Silver Telly Award last year for best branded video content. So I'm really proud of Justin and all of his many accomplishments. And so please join me in welcoming Dr. Justin Meyer to the stage. Well, thank you, Kit. <clears throat> thank you, uh, Dean Poliano, for uh, all of your leadership in bioscience uh, and ushering us through this pandemic and all the ushering in a new era of actually life science uh, on the campus. So thank you for everything. It is my honor uh, to introduce Brian Grenfell today. Um, so we have a little video introduction, and so I'm going to keep this really short. And I want to make two points. And so the first point is on his research. So Brian's going to talk today about phylodynamics. It's this conceptual framework, and it's a series of mathematical equations uh, that help us understand how diseases spread. So from small scales to large scales, and it's being used to understand the pandemic that we're going through right now. It's being used by many, many other researchers. So he's the founder, but it's being used by lots and lots of people. Uh, and so this is to understand measles or you know, the spread of influenza, all of these different diseases. So one day we are going to be, uh, our science is going to be good enough that we will actually be able to anticipate how our viruses evolve, how they change, what the new strain of SARS-CoV-2 is going to be. Uh, and we'll be able to stay one step ahead of our viruses. We'll be able to create that new vaccine uh, before the virus even knows sort of how it's going to change. And when our science is at that point, it's all going to be built on this phylo phylodynamic framework, this framework that Brian has innovated. So the second point is that when I reached out to all of Brian's colleagues to, to ask them about Brian and how, how I should do this introduction, uh, all of them unanimously pointed out that Brian is kind, that he's generous, that he's a great mentor and a great colleague. And so I think it's fantastic that we can award somebody today that has made such an amazing contribution to basic science research, that that research has important medical applications, and that that person himself is just a genuine good person, interested in a lot of societal problems and fixing them, interested in uh, equity, diversity, inclusion, and other, other uh, subjects. So uh, with that, I'm going to cue the video and then we'll introduce Brian to come up and give his talk. So the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and many other threats underlines that we humans really to, need to understand better the ecology of infectious disease. I've worked in this area for the last 40 years and with successive research groups have explored the waxing and waning of epidemics, their evolution and the impact of control measures like vaccination. We focused initially especially on measles. It's a great model because immunity after infection is extremely strong so that we can 
tend to use very simple models to understand quite complex and wonderful historical data. So I've explained that measles elicits a very strong immune response after infection. However, a lot of very important infections, notably SARS-CoV-2 and influenza, um, are much more imperfectly immunizing. This often happens because they evolve new variants to escape prevailing immunity, and we see that as a big problem currently with the pandemic. I started working in this area, and a lot of great people had done work, particularly on influenza ecology and evolution before that, but I felt that I needed, for my own purposes, a one word to describe the interaction between the viral phylogenies, the immunity, and the epidemic dynamics. So I coined the term phylodynamics. It turned out that, that this was a timely coinage because a lot of people have taken up the word and applied it much more broadly since. So I think a very important area is the question of cross-scale dynamics. Let me explain that in terms of epidemics. We really need to understand how events at the molecular scale ramify up in their influence through transmission to the population level, to global phylogenies of disease. And then, for example, how there's a loop back to the molecular level when new viral variants come along. So, so that sounds a bit specialized, but actually those questions of cross-scale dynamics particularly if we take into account the vagaries and dynamics of human behavior in our models, are right at the heart of humanity's attempts to attack many existential problems from pandemics to climate change to conflict and many other things. So I've drawn many lessons, particularly from interacting with, with great colleagues and, and students and postdocs. Let me give you three, and none of these will arises particularly original because I think we all think these are, things are important. The first is, to, to quote Louis Pasteur, chance favours the prepared mind. Often serendipity will give you opportunities and the trick is to, to evolve the, the slightly prepared mind to, to, to see them and exploit them. It's linked to the ability to ask good questions. The second broad point is that collaboration, particularly with new people and across disciplines, is, apart from being great fun, is wonderful in terms of uh, getting your research going. We're collaborating now with, with, with climate scientists in Princeton on the impact of what, a warming world on infectious disease. We always got on very well, but we, we didn't understand each other's language. And learning each other's scientific language is a challenge, but it's also a great fun thing to do. Finally, and this is, this is of course a universal and obvious thing, be kind. I've benefited hugely from the kindness of mentors and colleagues, and it's my duty, and I think all our duty, to pass this on to the younger generation. Well, very many thanks uh, to the organisers. Um, one of the... Um, many joys and privileges of the Kyoto Prize is how interdisciplinary it is. Um, I'm delighted and privileged to be sandwiched in between Calva's tour de force this morning and Zakir's tour de force um, in, in a couple of days' time. Um, the really interesting thing, I think, chatting together is often, though, across this wide range from humanities to um, science and engineering is 
common themes do emerge. An obvious one is the power of mentorship and the power of passing on. And this is, this, a lot of this talk, as with Carver's, is directed at the young people of the audience, really. And, and the other is, um, for example, in this case, and work with me here, I think rhythms across scales will permeate and, and, uh, and thanks to Carla for an introduction to waves, because we're going to need those. Rhythms across scales um, is, is a powerful thing that might um, unite all our talks and presentations. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce uh, epidemic dynamics in, in a very simple, quite non-mathematical way. And then I'm going to talk about... Um, three major research themes, and we're starting off with the straight-up dynamics, waxing and waning of epidemics, uh, as we saw in that, in that movie on the first slide, and that was measles in England and Wales. Um, and then we're going to build up to think about knitting that together with evolution, which is the phylodynamic idea. And then I'm going to talk about four broad lessons um, that um, I've learned um, in my research career. So what do we mean by an epidemic? Here's an example. I've worked on epidemics of measles, influenza, for example, rotavirus, enteroviruses, SARS-CoV-2, etc., etc. There are differences, but there are unifying themes. I really like acute short duration epidemics. And this is a lovely example of hand, foot and mouth disease in uh, Japan, a time series, and um, fr from the 1980s up into the 2000s. And um, it illustrates what I mean. Um, you get these spiky epidemics with their look-like patterns, sometimes great patterns at the end, for example. And this is from um, the, the National Institute of Infectious Disease in Japan, who are particularly magnificent at recording these sorts of data. And this is driven by a number of enterovirus uh, pathogens. So we're trying to understand uh, these spiky dynamics. And to do that, we need to describe them statistically, but then we also need to move to a step of mechanism to understand what's going on. So we need to make mathematical models for that. It's often useful, think of animal models in, in, in the biosciences, it's often useful to have a simple system that you can then build from to look at greater complexities. And I'm going to argue, and many people have argued really, that, that measles is a great example there. It's, it's an acute viral infection. Before the vaccine in the 1960s, everybody would have got it, essentially, to a good approximation, unless you were in, in, in very isolated uh, locations. Um, it's mostly, and it's highly transmissible. It's got a, a higher R0 than SARS-CoV-2 recent variants, for example, maybe 18 to 20 secondary cases from a primary case in a um, in a susceptible population. It's mostly childhood infection. It's got very characteristic symptoms, which, is, which was useful in the historical times when, when docs just used uh, clinical reports to, to uh, record epidemics of measles. It's, um, it's a serious infection, and there's some mortality, and it used to be a major killer. And the, the great triumph of vaccination campaigns in Africa, for example, the very unsung triumph, have uh, really reduced that a lot. Um, it's, it's very interesting because it's immunosuppressive, so it, it actually predates a lot of the, the, the white blood cells that are part of our immune system. Um, uh, but it also causes con contradiction here, lifelong immunity um, if you recover. And the lifelong immunity bit I'm going to show is very important. That's why it's going to be so simple, in a sense. There's an excellent live attenuated vaccine um, licensed since 60, 1963, and... Um, 
There's still, however, a high disease burden in some countries, and to some extent, you'll now know in the US, a lot because of vaccine hesitancy. And, and, And we really could eliminate measles, and we should really try and do so with this excellent vaccine. So the other thing about a lot of these infectious diseases is that there are very rich data. You saw that on the first slide. Um, This is an example, uh, a slightly more detailed uh, picture. So the circle, the areas of the circles here are the number of cases. And London's in yellow. This is in England and Wales, where there are particularly rich data. And then, and then it moves down to small places. And yellow on, on the inset here is, is the, are the cases in, in, in London and, and, and white the rest of the country just scaled for comparison. And you see things were pretty irregular um, up to the 1950s. And this is well before vaccination. But then it settles down. And I'm going to briefly explain all this. It settles down to these... If, I like it anyway, um, beautiful biennial patterns. There's an epidemic every other year. So there are clearly fundamental regularities that must be driving this. You also see, and I'll also come back to this, when the epidemic starts, you'll see that there are, things are pretty synchronised, but there are waves. There are waves moving away from London, from, from, from Liverpool and Manchester, um, which seem to be seeding the small places, a little bit like a forest fire. And I'm going to return to that point later on. So what do we mean by a model then? We want to make a model of that. And um, a model really is, and and this this echoes Carver's lovely uh, points about this, um, is really a way of abstracting um, the essential features of a system, a dynamic system often, and and using those to explore what the salient features are. Now, uh, you, you know, the, the Einsteinian quote of as simple as possible, but not simpler. You leave something vital out and the model won't be any good, right? And if the model's wrong in an interesting way, that's a particularly powerful opportunity to, to, try, to try and refine it. So what's the model going to be here then? Well, um, most children, when it was, in, when it was really psych- circ- circling a lot, um, um, get some, some strong immunity for a few months from their mothers, and then um, they move into a susceptible class. They then interact, and it's aerosol transmitted, as I said, with infected people. And then um, uh, you, you're in the infected class for a couple of weeks. Let's say it's an uncomplicated infection. And then you remove, move, move through to an immune class. And even if you are exposed to the virus and get it a little bit, you'll never transmit it again. So it's this one-way flow. And as we'll see, that's, um, that's going to add, add, add a lot of simplicity. Um, here are the equations. The details don't matter, but I'm going to point out one thing. Here's the transmission rate, and the transmission rate, a little bit like gas molecules bumping up against each other. Again, analogies with, with physics and chemistry. There's, there's a product. It makes common sense. The transmission rate's a product of how many susceptible people you have and how many infected people you have. And there are various ways, more complicated ways of doing that. But that means I'm going to use this word nonlinear a lot. And that means we have nonlinear feedbacks here. You can, and, and with nonlinearity, you can get unexpected things happening. And, and, and we'll see quite a bit of that. And we've seen that hugely with SARS-CoV-2. Um, so strong, prolonged immunity on recovery. So let's now simulate an epidemic just with the mouse here. Say everyone is susceptible in a population at the start, and you introduce one person with measles. They'll infect 20 people. Each of them will infect 20 people. As you'll see, 
20 squared, 20 cubed, the epidemic will shoot up in, in, in this exponential form. It doesn't always have to be exponential. Space complicates that, but we've seen it in, in the pandemic sometimes, rapid increase. That's going to deplete the infected people. This is this nonlinear feedback. And that means that uh, uh, more and more of the people you meet if you're an infected person are immune and therefore the epidemic will turn over and then reduce. And, and the recovered immune people for measles, this would not be the case for SARS-CoV-2, which we all know is much more complicated and imperfect in it immunity. This is this decline. So, so the epidemic is wiped out, even though there are a few susceptible people left. And that's this idea of herd immunity. Some people are indirectly protected. And it's a powerful idea and does work for measles and a few other infections. And, it, and if, you have a, if you have a vaccine and it elicits strong herd immunity, that's extremely powerful because it's like an interest rate on the, on the control, if you like. So I'm now going to talk about my major research themes, uh, building on just that simple model picture. Um, uh, first of all, just looking at the epidemic dynamics, this nonlinear feedbacky epidemic dynamics, focusing a lot on measles. And um, what we needed to do is to develop statistical methods to understand and quantify the patterns I've shown you, and then uh, modeling frameworks to interpret why we were seeing patterns. And um, I was uh, very privileged to be a, a postdoc of, of, the, of the guy on the right here, Roy Anderson, who was at Imperial College when I moved from my, from my PhD in the University of York. And this, this other gentleman is Robert May, who is a great uh, in many contexts, um, theoretical biologists originally came from physics. And I, I'd argue that Roy and Bob, I have a huge debt to, they were um, really drove the start of this field and were one of the most powerful um, uh, collaborative pairs in population biology. So, so Roy said, you know, go away. I've, I've seen, I, I like these cycles. We want to write a paper, go away and learn about time series analysis. So I'd done, you know, math in school, not not in university, but it's a great pleasure when you have to go away and learn a new technique. That's that's um, always a fantastic thing to do, particularly when you can analyze interesting data sets. So I learned about Fourier analysis, um, looking at the, the, these annual and biennial patterns. Um, and You'll see, though, that Fourier analysis would, would really treat this as one unit. There are biennial and annual patterns there every other year and every year. But you see there are the changes that we saw in the movie. Here's the, the in, in the late 1940s, more like annual cycles, and, and it changes a lot after the start of vaccination. Um, so I, I, I got into then looking at wavelet spectra, which look at changes in cyclicity through time. And the backstory here was I was... Um, uh, I was on a grant panel um, re reviewing a grant and I needed to look something up about it. And on the, on the next page in the Nature Journal I was looking at, this is when everything was on paper, there was a beautiful paper on uh, of some oceanographers using wavelets to analyse sea surface temperatures and so on. So I thought this looked fantastic. And, and it's a rare example of being on grant panels is a useful thing, actually. <laughs> Um, so, so the wavelet, the wavelet spectrum for London here, uh, here's the annual pattern. It's a bit spotty, but you can see the annual pattern there. And then the two-year cycles, and I'm using wavelength um, here. Carver really focused on, on, on frequency a lot. Um, you, you see that 
there wasn't much. The, 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 the light orange color here is high power. So there's an annual peak in power and a biennial one. And there's a biennial pattern. And then as you vaccinate, as you crank up vaccination, and the Brits did that quite slowly, the period increases because it takes longer and longer to top up the susceptibles. And we'll come back to that. But it, it gives us a kind of powerful way of describing what's going on, but not modeling it. So then we need to go back to the models and um, with a wonderful set of postdocs and grad students in, in Cambridge, where I was at the time, we worked on all these things, seasonality, stochastic persistence. This is a discrete state space. It, you, the infection can wink out if, if, if the troughs of if the cases are low enough. Age structure, demographic variations in vaccination, which I'll come back to. But I want to focus on seasonality. So I'm, I'm going to, so I have to draw the epidemics this way. This is an epidemic moving through time. If we flip it over, then um, the mathematics of that model without seasonality that I showed is, is just a damped pendulum. And, you know, pendula, um, it starts off at a two-year cycle, but then it'll, it, in the model, which is obviously wrong, so that we need to fix the model, it moves down to an, to an average pattern. Um, so this is a bit like a swing. And seasonality is like an adult pushing the kid on the swing every year. So that pumps up the epidemics and produces those beautiful patterns. That's how you fix that model. Noise can do it as well, actually, but it's, it's mainly seasonality. We then developed a series of statistical methods. You have to fit the data to these lovely historical data sets. And uh, particularly with co colleagues, uh, Bebel Finkenstadt, Jess Metcalf, and Otto Bjornstadt, and the latter two have developed this a lot since. We managed to produce um, time series analysis versions of the SIR model effectively. And a lot of other people have been interested in producing parallel methods. And there's, um, and there's a lot of excitement now about machine learning applications, which I think are going to be great. But that allowed us to explain that long-term variation we saw in the movie because you see that there's a biennial pattern uh, over most of this pre-vaccination period every year, the year and the red is the model fitted to short-term uh, predictability and, and the, the dots are the data but at the start it's more annual and the model captures that because of the baby boom the baby boom you top up the susceptibles quicker uh, and therefore, it flips to an annual cycle and then it flips to a biennial one. So, so you know, extraordinarily complex social networks here, immunity, blah, blah, blah. But um, some simple dynamics do emerge. So imagine now we've got our parent pushing the swing and they get a bit excited and they start pushing it harder in, 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 in model world, at least. Then what will happen is... The, the, the two-year cycle will get a bit more complicated and it'll look like a four-year cycle and then that'll double again and you'll get chaotic dynamics. So this had long been shown that it was possible theoretically and there were a lot of efforts then to show it in the, the slightly irregular time series of measles. It's, it's actually quite a challenge to, to characterize chaos and um, you, you really need a good model before you can, you can do it and then you can do it from the Jacobian for those people interested. But um, w with uh, led really by... Uh, uh, Nita Barty and, and Matt Ferrari, we had a great collaboration with um, the epidemiological part of Doctors Without Borders and the Nigerian uh, Ministry of Health. And this is in Niamey in Niger, in Niger um, and, and where the, where, which is a tremendously high birth rate. And it has extremely irregular and it's in, turned out chaotic-like dynamics. Um, and that was because there was an extremely strong seasonality of transmission, not because of kids were in schools, but because 
um, it looked from night lights and other things, that these were large-scale annual agricultural movements. People moved into the cities, densities increased and so on. So, so again, this was trying to fill in the map of, yes, we can see the, the simple dynamics, and then we can also see the complex ones sometimes. But this is complex dynamics, but a simple model still. Then we moved on to look at spatial dynamics. As a postdoc, I discovered that um, the, 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 those lovely time series of measles for England and Wales. And when I moved to Cambridge, to, to my still greater delight, I discovered that there were um, all the raw data were in the Cambridge University Library, 1400 time series effectively. This was pre-very um, smart um, uh, uh, electronic automatic methods for, for digitizing. So teams of students, we, we digitized it manually. And that, that let us look at the spatial dynamics. Um, here's an, a great analysis led by, by Max Lau. And this was using gravity models, which, which are, um, uh, and you can read about the details, which, which were, were developed in, in spatial geography and economics and other things. And um, that means that, and we saw those waves, remember, in, in the movie, uh, uh, the, the dynamics in, in smaller places is dominated by the proximity to bigger places. So you get sparks from London. So the yellow is London here. The blue is Liverpool and Manchester. But then there's also, Max very cleverly shown, um, there's sometimes just local metapopulation dynamics. Uh, uh, up in the northeast here, you can't see who's influencing it. And it's just that um, asynchronous transmission between places can keep the infection going. And then Max... Just, just, just in one slide, looked into the vaccination era, and and the blue here is just metapopulation like dynamics and and and, and hierarchical dynamics. As, as you move through the vaccination era and things get more and more irregular, um, the, the black is we can't identify where the dynamics are coming from. And a lot of them were probably external seeding from other countries. So this sort of analysis is going to be important when we're thinking about, hopefully, um, larger term elimination of measles. So, so I've talked about population dynamics so far, and I think one can do that talking about measles. Um, but a lot of infections, the dynamics and the immunity is much more imperfect. Influenza is the classic example of this. So let me illustrate that. I'm comparing um, measles, uh, measles on the top row here and, and, and influenza on the bottom row. And remember that for evolution, um, we, we need heritable variation. And both these viruses have a quite error, large error rate when they reproduce. So there's a lot of variation um, in an individual, in the products of one cell, and so on. Um, so you've got variation, and then if you if you um, selection is required for evolution, and that comes about um, uh, because, for example, you can escape prevailing immunity a bit better. And again, th th that's palpably been very important with the COVID pandemic. So if we look at um, we can look at the, at the dynamics with the phylogeny, the evolutionary dynamics with the phylogeny, which is just through time, time is moving in this direction, the family tree. And this is phylogeny of surface molecules uh, that the immune system attacks. So measles, there isn't a strong pattern, right? You can't really see a strong pattern there. Um, influenza, there's this beautiful ladder-like phylogeny, by which I mean, if I just, just look there, that's one historical strain. Um, it splits into two, but then this one wins. Um, previously, 
you get a split into two and one of them wins. So there's clearly a, what, what might be a selective sweep for the evolution of biologists. There's clearly a lot of selection happening. And um, the reason is that measles, um, whatever the variation, the immunity is very common. It's very strong mu- immunity against all variants. So all that complexity is blocked off. Influenza, um, um, as we all know, unfortunately, you get the infection when you're a bit immune and then a year later or a few years later, you'll get it again. So the immunity is very imperfect. And, and the reason, the biological reasons for this are still fully to be worked out. And we can talk about it later if you're interested. So to understand this, then we need to bring together the, uh, the, the immune dynamics, the epidemic dynamics, how deep are the troughs and so on. Does, does, it, does a variant disappear or not? And the evolutionary dynamics and and. and as in that uh, little movie, um, I, I, I thought I needed a term to understand this, and I coined the idea of bringing together the phylogenies and the dynamics, phylodynamics. And that's been adopted quite a lot. It, it was a timely time to coin it, and it's been adopted quite a lot in, 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 a, in a lot of the rest of the biology of pathogens and other things. So let's just talk about um, a, an example of some of the models that we can do. And this is... Um, this is just a, a simple model in the paper that we wrote at the individual level. Let's imagine on the x-axis here, we've got um, immune pressure, but what, by which I mean the immunity is very strong at this end, very weak at this end. So um, obviously the red curve, um, the, the amount of virus that you've got I- I- in your body is going to decline with the immune pressure. The immune response is very strong just in this simple cartoon. Um, and, and that means you won't transmit it as much. Um, but the selection increases with the immune pressure. So there's this trade-off. So the blue curve, the blue line, increases with, um, with the strength of immunity. And the amount of, the amount of, um, variab- of um, escape uh, evolution that you'll transmit depends on the combination of these two. So it, it's this parabola. So a, a prediction here is that, is that if you're measles, you, 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 there's a lot of selection potentially, but you're not going to transmit any of it. Um, whereas the, the peak the prediction, which has been, been borne out in, in many contexts, at intermediate level of immunity, uh, you see the strongest um, uh, e- evolution of immune escape. And you can apply these ideas across a lot of other characteristics of viruses and other pathogens. So a lot of people have then developed this in, in various directions, applying it to cell biology, a lot of other things, um, a lot of wonderful work. Um, we, we've looked at uh, it in a, a couple of particular ways, and I'll just give you very quick examples. This is work with a um, wonderful colleague, uh, Cecile Vibou at the, the NIH. And that movie that I showed you of measles, that movement pre-vaccination was of kids, right? Everyone had had measles by 10 years. So it's incre- incredibly hard to, to uh, you could do it these days if I had cell phones. But in 1950, it was very hard to work out the, the laws of motion of, of children, right? You, you don't, the, the, how far they disperse is probably not very much except in holidays and so on. Influenza, because the immunity is imperfect, um, this is seasonal flu, and the lines are just movements, important uh, epidemiological movements of, of flu. Because of commuters, and particularly airline commuters, actually, probably, uh, y- you haven't got symptoms for the first you know, 15 hours or whatever, then it can jump a long direct distance. And that fundamentally different um, uh, dynamics of movement is because of commuters in this case, and it's ultimately because of the imperfect immunity.
And uh, another example is rotavirus. This is work with uh, uh, a fantastic uh, colleague, Virginia Pitzer at Yale. And Ginny looked at um, the introduction of rotavirus vaccine. It's a very messy flow diagram. I'm not going to show you it, but it's very imperfectly immunizing. You've only got it for um, uh, immunity for about a year. There are lots of strains. It's, It's a mess. I wasn't sure that we'd see simple patterns. I was wrong, and she you can read the paper to, um, to, 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 for that to be explained. But a sign that something simple's happening here is this is there's a, there's a very good vaccine, and this was, this was it in the, it introduced into the US. And um, this is the pre-vaccination pattern. And then in the first year, the vaccine was really administered strongly. It's this red curve, and it's later. The epidemic's later, and that implies that the reproduction ratio of infection, which we all know about, is less. So there's strong herd immunity here. And Jenny made the model, and you can read the paper, and you see qualitatively we capture that that pattern, the difference between the blue and the red curves there. Um, So what's happening here? Even though the immunity is imperfect, rotavirus is intensely transmissible on the first infection, which which is in very young infants. Um, uh, probably a higher R0 there than measles, actually, 30 or 40. Um, you replace that with vaccination, and then suddenly it's much less transmissible. So you get this herd immunity effect. So the devil's often in the detail. Um, and that's, a lot of this is because of the nonlinear feedbacks. So then we applied uh, these phylodynamic ideas to um, project... Uh, Everyone in our field, as, as, as was described of Justin, kind of dropped everything to work on, the, on, the, on a lot of aspects of the pandemic. And just focusing on a couple of things here, um, we, we, we were interested in using the simplest models we could to titrate what the strength of immunity, which we didn't know at the start of the pandemic, that strong versus weak would do, first of all, to the long-term epidemic dynamics. And the details don't, don't matter here, but you can look at the papers. If we, if we compare, for example, poor, poor immunity with strong immunity, and, and the, the lower curve with the green is if there's a vaccine, um, then, then it's not a surprise, but this, this, and unfortunately, this is somewhat what happened. Uh, the the immunity is very strong clinical immunity, but particularly in the face of variants, if the immunity is poorer, you get these recurrent epidemics, and um, the, things are much lower and, and and much more optimistic if the immunity is strong. And the truth of the matter was somewhere in between this. So we then we then applied this. Added some phylodynamic models, so this is the this is the the parabola, and this was this was driven by two fantastic people in my group at the time, Caroline Wagner and uh, Shadi Sad Roy, and um, we looked, and again you can read the paper at optimistic versus pessimistic patterns for for, for immune escape. This is an optimistic case. Uh, if the if the if these if these blobs for the different strains were at the peak, then things would be more pessimistic. Um, uh, and, and what came out of this really was we need to vaccinate universally because what you don't want is a lot of transmission. In, in I mean, apart from the public health uh, uh, and humanitarian importance of this, vaccination is good for everyone because it, it reduces uh, the potential for new variants to come along. It, the, the success of that that idea was patchy, actually, in fact, but. Um, uh, it illustrated the, 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 that it's in everyone's interest to vaccinate very widely. So I wanted to just talk about some um, some very recent work using very very simple models. So you'll excuse the simplicity here. And this is this is work driven uh, by a fantastic Danish uh, postdoc 
Bjarke Nielsen. And what he started to do was explore patterns of viral diversity. And he, he looked at this is of SARS-CoV-2 diversity. And he looked at um, the UK principally because they had particularly rich um, sampling for quite long periods, but also compared that globally. And um, th here's the paper, if you're interested, it's just out. And um, he explored evolutionary dynamics just to describe them uh, via changes in, in, in viral sequences. And he, and he used, and, and, and we looked at a variety of measures here and looked at uh, insertions and deletions and, and used the spike in amino acids. But this is the simplest case. Used humming distances. Now, what's a humming distance? Imagine you've got a bunch of sequences of SARS-CoV-2 or something else in a week. Then you take random pairs of those and you work out, so here's the genetic code and you could use different options here. Um, there are two differences just in this cartoon and that would lead to a humming distance of two. So the bigger the number, the more the, more the differences are. They might not be different at all. And then you plot the distribution of those. So this is a, a, a lot of uh, not very variable. This might be a, a new variant coming along, for example, depending how these wax and wane. So um, we love movies. So this is uh, the distribution of humming distance, and this is the ancestral strain. And then we're about to see a minor Euro strain coming to the UK. So there's, there's these complexities, and this is the jump. And then um, as we move through to the next strain, alpha, then um, uh, you, you, you see that you get a jump and then it drops back down as the, the, the new strain wipes out the old one. And then that's Omicron, this big jump. Um, is, is the Omicron jump. And then after that, um, uh, in fact, you don't see a, a series of replacements. Um, you see a, a little bit of coexistence there. So let's go through this again. Here's, here's the ancestral strain. Here's a new one. So there's, there's more variability. And then that variability drops down as if that's replaced by the next dominant strain. And then this is the delta strain. Um, which, which takes over, and then there's not much variation because it's all delta. And then wait for it. This is BA1. So that's, that's the first um, Omicron strain, which is an immense jump. And then what you see later on is this series of big jumps and replacements is, is replaced by uh, a little bit more coexistence, and I'll explain that in a second. So what Bjarke did was to make the simplest model he could. So he, he comes from a physics background, tends to do this. This one worked well, I think. Um, it's a simple network model, and it says most uh, jumps between individuals, m most uh, creation of new strains is just like one, uh, uh, one amino acid. It's often, he, he assumed, it, it, it's... it's uh, there are trade-offs, and it's it's not very successful if it's a small jump or it's neutral. And then occasionally, so these 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 secondary marks, um, th th there's a big jump, and that might be, for example, in someone who's immunosuppressed or someone else who's got a prolonged infection. So occasional big saltational jumps, uh, and, um, and 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 really dominated by short-range jumps. And this model doesn't work too badly, actually. So here's the observed pattern. Imagine I'm, I've got the movie and I'm looking down on it now so that the, yellow, the light yellow here is the peak of the humming distance. So you see a gradual drift up in the humming distance. And then there's a jump to a new variant. This is the observed data. Gradual change and then a jump. And here's the big Omicron jump. And the model doesn't capture that badly qualitatively. Um, you'll have spotted that... 
in recent times, n- now there's a, there's a dominant again, but in recent times, there was a lot of coexistence. And, and, and Bialka's looked at that and partial cross-immunity between strains uh, g- gives a, a, a stronger possibility of, of coexistence. Uh, and you can read the paper to look at that in detail. Now, this is, this, this is just really a baby step in trying to understand these very complex patterns. The, the experts in the room will know that you need um, a, a, a lot more information, particularly data on antigenic maps and, 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 um, and uh, understanding the immune phenotype uh, in, in much more detail. But it's interesting that um, uh, you can see these quite clear-cut patterns if the data are strong enough. It's crucial, just to really emphasize this, it's crucial to keep viral uh, surveillance uh, strong and also to increase biological knowledge, speaking to the immunologists and virologists, we should not drop the ball now because hopefully the, 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 the pandemic's decreased. Obviously, there's long COVID and there, there may be new variants and stuff. But um, keeping up levels of viral surveillance, and I'll come back to this at the end, is extremely important, uh, as, along with biological refinements to, to increase our understanding. We looked at a bunch of other things. I just want to tell you one more thing about the feedbacks and then I'll conclude. Um, This was lovely work. One of the things that we saw, and you'll have experienced this, was that um, non-pharmaceutical interventions against COVID, which which reduced the the, the pandemic intensity um, in in many contexts, um, one thing it absolutely did was stop epidemics of everything else. So influenza, there was a missing season, seasonal influenza, uh, this one, respiratory syncytial virus, which is an extremely important winter virus, lower respiratory tract uh, virus um, uh, of, of very young children. And uh, we have quite good models for these endemic infections. And, and Rachel took her model for RSV. So here, here's the cases and the dots are, are observed data. And, and here are the susceptibles. This is for Florida. And she introduced and she fitted the model um, to 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 to. This was the period, just in this simple illustration, of reduced transmission. Now, we know from the feedbacks, right, that if you reduce transmission, what you're going to do is increase the susceptibles because that birth cohort won't be infected. So the model shows that if you, um, if you, if you knock the transmission down and you don't wipe it out, the susceptibles are going to build up so that then the next epidemic that comes is going to be a big one. Now, there may be two missing, maybe a lot of other complexities, but you see these non-linear feedbacks writ large. It's very interesting, you know, for the young people in the audience. The big, very diverse cold viruses, rhinoviruses, seem to sail through all this. And, you know, to, to, to fundamentally biologically understand that, you need a comp, uh, uh, collaborations between uh, virologists, um, uh, immunologists, um, epidemiologists, engineers and physicists to get the fluid dynamics right, chemists to understand what's happening in drop, droplets, social scientists to get at the mixing of populations. So, so it's an incredible possibility with these important and, and, and fundamentally interesting questions that there's huge possibilities for collaboration across disciplines. So broad point, I hope I've convinced you that Simple models can sometimes explain complex data. Not always, but certainly for measles, can, uh, can explain complex data. Trouble is, boiling away under the epidemic for anything a bit more complicated are human behavioral dynamics and the immune system. These are the two most complicated things we understand in the universe, right? Um, 
human behavior and the immune system. So for more complex infections, you need much more rich data sets. So it's, it's simple until it isn't simple. But always start with the simplest model. Broad lesson two, the power of comparative studies and interdisciplinary work. We, we work with uh, particularly, ex, ex, as I said in, in, in the movie, working with the climate scientists who were also working on these nonlinear dynamical systems, much, much richer data sets. But again, many challenges. It was a joy to really interact with them and to, to, to get some sort of idea um, how we could understand each other well enough to collaborate. In the idea about thinking about across disciplines, just to, just to underline that I've also worked in a bunch of other areas. I worked on equine influenza, which doesn't sound like a great model, these very large animals. You couldn't keep them in a laboratory very well. But it's a natural host, H3N8 flu, of influenza. And racehorses are extremely valuable. So the vaccine testing is extraordinarily powerful. Um, this is me and a little Welsh cob pony who really didn't like me at all. This is, this is the first slide of me doing field work, actually. There's going to be another one. Um, this uh, collaboration is what I really based the phylodynamic stuff on. We worked on um, the, the relative of measles in seals, which caused major extinction, uh, major uh, uh, epidemics in the late 1980s um, and then wiped itself out. Classic example of a nonlinear feedback because it used up so many other susceptibles. It didn't make it through the next trough. Um, worked on the foot and spatial dynamics and the UK foot and mouth disease um, uh, in 2001. And uh, uh, on the bottom right here, a lovely collaboration on, on thinking about chronic infections on elephantiasis with uh, fantastic colleagues in, in Pondicherry in southern India. It was a great privilege to work with them. And then finally, away from parasites, working on the nonlinear dynamics, again, thinking about nonlinearity of Soe, Sheepons and Kilda. So I, I'm just going to stress here, and I mention it uh, on, 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 in the movie, is the importance of cross-scale dynamics. And Carver talked about this fantastically, I think. It's really hard to do it in biology. I, th I, I think the physicists do an incredible job going from the tiny to the very large. In biology, it's difficult. But let me illustrate that. Um, we're going from the molecular scale, um, viral antigens, cell receptors, within host dynamics and the, immu and the immune response, um, up to be at the, the transmission process, which is often hard to get at. Think to the population scale, to regional dynamics, to the global, global patterns, and then the, the viral phylogeny and, and, and um, the evolution of, say, new variants. But the new variant will, will impinge on the molecular scale again. So there's, there's this cycle. It's incredibly complicated. My favorite example, apart from viruses, of course, of cross-scale dynamics, is my, t my two colleagues in my department, Peter and Rosemary Grant, who are also uh, Kyoto laureates, who did wonderful work on this cross-scale dynamics using Darwin's finches. I try and explain to them that I think that SARS-CoV-2 and influenza are the Darwin's finches of the next century, and they kind of smile and nod, but I, I, I've, not, I've not succeeded on that yet. Um, so, so then... A, 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 really an appeal for better collection of data as well as biological understanding for these systems to get at this cross-scale stuff. So just in brief, we, we measure the infected people, right, in an epidemic, and we, and we sequence them, and that's very powerful. But the other two groups here, 
the susceptible people and the recovered people, they're incredibly power, powerful things to measure. And with serology, and this is an area that, 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 that um, needs to be developed biologically as well. I'm sure the experts will, will agree with that. If we could make a global immunological observatory where we knew, roughly speaking, what the immunity was against a range of pathogens in lots of countries... A lot of methods would need developed, lots of regulatory things. You know, it's not a simple thing. A lot of people are interested in this now. Uh, Jess Metcalf, my colleague, and Michael Minna and I have argued that this would be a very powerful thing to have. So you, you, do the, you do the pathogen sequencing and discovery, which is incredibly powerful, metagenomics and so on. But, but if, you could, if you could, it's trickier to do serology sometimes, but there's incredible power there. Just in terms of the models, if we knew all the state variables, we'd be in a much more powerful place. My, my lovely um, NOAA um, climate change colleagues, uh, um, if, they had, if they had important missing variables, they'd put up a satellite, you know, or buoys. They, they wouldn't mess around. We should do the same in global health. And this is the second picture of me very rarely doing fieldwork, actually, on, on St. Kilda. And all I was allowed to do was hold the sheep because I was so, while it was being sampled, I was much too incompetent to do anything else. Um, <laughs> and the power and pleasure of collaboration and mentoring is, uh, as Carver says, uh, um, and as Zaki will say, is, 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 is the greatest pleasure in many ways. And um, you know, I, I hope in, in one or other of these fields, younger folks in the audience will think, well, I could make um, a, a, serious comment, uh, a, a serious contribution to that field. Um, so I think I'm going to stop there so that we've got time to discuss. Um, and it's been a great privilege to be uh, awarded uh, the, the Kyoto Prize in Basic Science. Um, uh, it's also been a deep pleasure to interact with the Inamori uh, uh, folks, and uh, and also to interact with all of you and the wonderful uh, uh, thing that the universities have done here in celebrating the prize. Thank you very much. Now we're we're going to have just a short panel discussion, uh, and we've we've got other great scientists to to join us. Um, and so we have Paul Turner at the end. He's uh, visiting from Yale. Uh, he's a member of the National Academy and has done exceptional research on viral evolution. Uh, and we actually have, I think, UCSD's newest faculty member, Noah Rose. Uh, Noah, Noah um, uh, is coming from Princeton, where he did his postdoc, uh, is starting up a new lab, uh, and has done incredible research on viruses that are transmitted by mosquitoes. Uh, and so, of course, you also know Brian and myself. Uh, so, I, you know, we, we didn't really, we planned some, some questions and some discussion. Um, uh, but seeing at, that we're different generations of scientists, we're from different countries as well, um, and that we have so many students in the audience uh, that, uh, and I was really moved by the, um, uh, the videos of the students that are receiving the scholarships, I thought maybe we could just go down the line and talk a little bit about how we got into science, how we got into research, and maybe even uh, into disease dynamics and things about viruses. So. Sure. Yeah, happy to say a few words about that. I think when I was the age of many of our members here in the audience, I was reading a lot of science outside of school, and I really got excited about evolutionary biology. And when I went to uh, University of Rochester, I did no research, but I maintained that interest. And it turned out that years later, um, I found that Living in, at that time, Southern California, I was just entering graduate school. 
uh, and this was in UC Irvine. And it turned out that I was studying bacterial evolution, but the AIDS epidemic was starting to take off. And I had a very keen sense of urgency that there would be some need to contribute my effort in evolutionary biology and my training closer to the virus world. And I basically never looked back from that. That was, uh, I don't know, circa 1995. So, so for me, I guess I'll summarize by saying from a very early age, outside of even the classroom, I was very interested in reading and learning more about evolutionary biology and then uh, lived through you know, the pandemic that is still ongoing in HIV, and that inspired me. And I wonder how many of the younger generation right now will be similarly inspired. So, yeah, thanks. Yeah, great. So um, I, th I think my story you might see a few parallels in. Uh, so I, I knew uh, as a young person I was very interested in science. And, and actually, when I first started my scientific career, I was most interested in environmental change and trying to understand you know, how ecosystems, how, how species were responding to a changing planet. Um, now, as I started out in my scientific career, I was actually really interested in, in conservation. Like, uh, saving the coral reefs was kind of the idea that I was really excited about. But when I was doing that field work, I was, I was on a small island called Rarotonga, and uh, sort of unexpectedly, everyone around me started turning up sick, and they had these unexplained rashes, and everyone on the entire island got sick, and I got sick, and we didn't know at all what was going on, and they were like, well, it's this new thing. It's, uh, it's called Zika virus, and at the time we were like, well, at least it's not dengue. So we were, we were relieved at the time. Uh, we didn't really know what we were dealing with. Um, but that was actually what got me interested in viruses and, and vector-borne disease, and, and so I sort of got interested in trying to understand what's this new thing that's happening? How is our planet changing, and how is that related to the emergence of, of, of diseases? And so, um, yeah, and, and since then I've just been really interested in these kinds of systems. And, so, um, so I was always interested in, in, in biology, but I'm very short-sighted and was incredibly incompetent uh, as a lab worker and in the field. Um, I did a zoology degree, and they were very into quantitative biology of insects there. And then I went to, in, that was in Imperial, I went to York, and my, my wonderful boss, PhD supervisor John Beddington, was working on the interaction of baleen whales and krill in the Southern Ocean, um, and and, and uh, that, was a, that was a cool thing to work on. I never saw a whale, um, and, um, and let alone a krill. Um, and all we had was the whale catch data. So it was a deeply difficult project, actually, had I known at the time. Um, but then, uh, just, uh, just by luck, he was a friend of the guy I introduced, Roy Anderson. And then um, there, there were rich, rich data sets. Um, and, uh, you know, you were like a kid in a chocolate shop. It, there, there were lots of problems. There were lots of great things to look at. So that's kind of how I, I got onto that. I'd also been very interested in these predator-prey oscillations of insects and their predators, of whales and krill, and, and something like measles is a classic example of that. So that's, that oscillation thing uh, has always been a fascination to me and has gone through things. But it, it arose out of incompetence, my career, effectively. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, there's a lot of parallels between all four of us. I... I... Uh, loved animals and bugs and anything I could sort of capture and put into a jar and study as a kid. Uh, I had the cringe-worthy uh, nickname Bug Boy. So <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was really cool, yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I, I was lucky in that I got into a good university. I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Uh, I'm first generation uh, to, to attend university in, in my family. Uh, and got into a good lab and uh, got to study nature and 
then eventually, uh, in a similar trajectory, began to become fascinated by viruses, that they're this incredibly diverse group of you know, life forms on Earth, and they evolve really fast, and they do all these cool things. And so I think we all sort of often think of viruses as, as sort of their, the impact that they have on us, uh, but they have their own biology that's really fascinating and interesting. And so uh, that's, that's sort of how I got into it. So uh, it, is, it is interesting to see these commonalities in that um, you know, a lot of what inspires, I think, all of our research is this idea that was talked about by Brian as well of you know, interdisciplinary science. So starting out in one field, changing and bringing uh, sort of all of, the, um, uh, all of that training and a unique perspective uh, onto the, the field, of, field of virology or, or evolution or so forth. So, okay, um, uh, one of the things that we are all collectively um, uh, uh, experts in is on host range expansion and how viruses go from infecting one species to a new species. Uh, so I'd like to kind of pivot, especially since we're dealing with this uh, SARS-CoV-2 pandemic where it's a virus that uh, was infecting likely bats or civets or pangolin and jumped into human populations uh, and now have caused this, you know, huge pandemic. Um, and so, yeah, I guess starting with, with Paul, um, you know, there's thousands and thousands of mammalian viruses that could make that transition. Um, and, you know, this has happened not that often in, in, our, in our recent history, but it yes. did just happen. Do we think it's going to happen again? Are there evolutionary constraints yeah. that would... So I, I think that's a great question. That's the heart of the matter is, you know, you see these opportunities for viruses to jump into new species. We care about it the most in humans and in domesticated systems that we rely on, including plants and animals. And we get very worried. And the question is, it's a little bit of what Brian said with surveillance. It's a bit impossible to know the extent to which this is happening on the planet. I mean, we suspect it's happening a lot, but we don't have the time, energy, and money to monitor all that. So I find it profoundly challenging to, uh, you know, I, I continue to work in my laboratory on so-called experiments predicting the next emergence, right, uh, event. And, you know, I've done that, and I, I guess I wasn't so good about predicting this one. So it, it, it gives me a lot of, uh, it makes me humble to think that there's so many intricacies and difficulties in grappling with this in a empirical way in the laboratory that I, I guess I'm pretty convinced it will happen frequently. I am more than a little worried about something that has not been studied that much is the opportunity for this to spill into other systems, SARS-CoV-2, and spill back. I mean, it's already, we're seeing evidence of it in other wild species. So, I, I mean, to me, I, I had this opportunity. I'm going to ask an expert like Brian. You know, that seems impossible to me to really work that in to the models. So can we conveniently just set it aside for now? Does it, does it make you lay awake at night thinking about white-tailed deer and how much SARS-CoV-2 is potentially yeah, in those so, populations? Or, um, you know, prion diseases. Or there, there, are, there, are a ton of, there are a ton of things out there. I mean, I think, I think you can play with the models a little bit. So we're unconstrained there. That's unsatisfying, but you can certainly do it. I mean... I, I think one thing is how difficult it actually is to make the jump, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to have, you're the expert on this, but you have to have the right ability to get into cells and, and transmit and do stuff. But you can't be too good 
So there was this seal outbreak in the in the 1980s, mm. and it it was at a great R naught, and it it but it was immunizing. So so it's a bit like biological in, invasions in ecology. It was so effective, it wiped itself out. Mm. So there are lots of, in the trough after the after the first peak. So it spread really well, spread too well, and wiped itself out. So and people are working on this. What are the characteristics the models can tell us? That you would need to be a good invader, but that's but you need the data, and yeah. that's the that's the tricky bit. And I think we know we look to you. Yeah. Uh, oh, great! So it's my problem. <laughs> yeah. people, you know. No, but if I could follow up briefly with that, I, I totally agree. This is a very difficult thing to predict. But what Brian is saying is very. Uh, Dr. Grenfell is saying here is very important. Is that we see a tremendous amount of constraint. So we're basically species on this planet living in more or less an ocean of viruses surrounding us, because they are the most plentiful thing on the planet. So were this capable of viruses to easily jump between species? It should be more of a problem, and it's not. So that is seeing the glasses being a bit half full rather than half empty. And uh, yes, this should keep me busy for many decades to come if I stay in the field, is that there's a tremendous amount of virus constraint in the ability to shift hosts. Yes. I, I, can I just be scary for a second, actually? Though, <laughs> though of course, again, you're, you, you guys are more expert. As people can bioengineer viruses, then we're in for an interesting time. I think. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. I, I'm happy to say more about that later, but I'm sure you want to hear from some of our other colleagues here. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually did want to follow up on this idea of um, spilling, back, spilling over into, say, deer, and then back over into humans. And so, and I hadn't actually, Brian, I hadn't seen this, um, this uh, work that you just published about, you know, how the, the sort of the, the pace of uh, evolutionary change is sort of gradual and then punctuated, then graduated, then punctuated. Um, and so one of the hypotheses for where Omicron came from was this idea that maybe it was sort of infecting other species and hiding out there and then jumping into humans. So, and you're, it looks like you guys actually your model predicts sort of the, the emergence of Omicron. Um, and so do we not have to have that kind of complicated explanation? Is that just sort of the normal rhythm of this disease? Or what, what do you, where do you think Omicron came from? I, um, I'm not going to speculate, he said cautiously. But, um, <laughs> but, but, but I think, I think it's, it's just a very sneaky virus and capable of very big jumps. I think... You know, um, there clearly was some situation where there was an incre- incredible increase in diversity, a selective force, and then and then it jumped through. I'm not sure you need to to, to think about other species, but you know, I'll, I'll certainly follow the data if someone can substantiate that. Sure. Yeah. yeah one one quick follow up I had uh, to to that sort of question of predictability maybe was. Um, you know, you were talking about integrating across multiple different scales, and, and one scale that is very interesting is, is time scales, right? Um, and, you know, you were talking about uh, stable oscillations on certain time scales, but we live on a really rapidly changing planet, and, uh, you know, the, the sorts of, for example, urban environments where you might see repeated epidemics of, uh, of, of disease popping up, those cities are more common, they're more widespread, and the interface between those cities and animal populations are also, that's a, that's a thing that's changing. So how much do you think we are moving into sort of a different, uh, a different situation than what we're used to? Is, is, are, are the future dynamics predictable from our past experiences? I mean, you can do something. We've done some work on influenza, thinking about influenza, seasonal influenza evolves probably when there's not much seasonality in a lot of people. 
so that it, 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 does, it doesn't get wiped out seasonally. And that's been in East Asia, huge populations. Um, but, uh, as you know much be better than me, it, it, it's, it, that's going to shift to Sub-Saharan Africa because there will be these mega populations. And, and, and that speaks to your lovely stuff on, on dengue, right? Is, are things going to be very different in 50 to 100 years' time in terms of the mystery of why dengue isn't in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa very much? I mean, the, at least the, the preliminary evidence we have give, gives us the reason to believe that it, it will change, that, that we're, we will move from a situation that is less permissive to the spread of diseases like dengue to one that's much more so, maybe, maybe more similar to the dynamics you see, for example, in South Asia right now. Um, you know, it remains to be seen, but that would be a, a very big change. If I, can I follow up on yeah. that? So something that I'm fascinated about, I'm thinking about arthropod-borne systems, mosquito-borne viruses, of which I still maintain some of that research. Um, the opportunities for that seem to be immense. Okay, So the links to which we would go to, say, stop malaria from transmitting in certain portions of the world, stop virus diseases from transmitting, uh, we're, we have technology in hand to alter natural communities to do this. Um, it's called gene drive technology. So the point I want to get to is that ultimately, what are we after there? Are we after what you mentioned in your talk, Brian, eradication of measles? Okay, it's a great goal. There are very few success stories like variola virus, which causes smallpox, where we've successfully actually eradicated a pathogen. So here's the question. I, I tend to bring this up to my young audiences in undergraduate courses and ask them and step away from the question and say, how far do you think we should go? Do you think that there's actually ethical boundaries that we are crossing when we eliminate a species from the planet? And they clearly, you know, ha, ha, ha. Yeah, they, they think that's a funny question when it comes to something like a virus, because they can't conceive, and they're probably right, of how crucial that virus may be to some community to have it function normally. But if you get rid of a mosquito, that's a different ballgame, because a lot of creatures use, for example, larval mosquitoes as food items. So, as we go about trying to eradicate guinea worm or something that is a fellow eukaryote, is this, is this a dilemma that we're approaching? So this is my attempt to be provocative, and I guess I'll, I'll put Brian on the spot first with this. I think there's going to be lots of unintended consequences. I've not thought of guinea worm, actually. Let, let's see if there are negative consequences of that. Very interesting idea. Slightly scary idea, Richie, since we're almost there, I think, which is a great triumph, you know. I mean, there's one point with measles. You, you, the idea was that if we could eradicate it, you'd stop vaccinating. No one thinks that anymore because you could make the measles virus in a lab now so that you can't actually stop vaccinating. You know, you've still got to keep some herd immunity in the population, even if you do eliminate something. And that alters the calculus a little bit, I think. Okay. All right. I mean, it, so certainly we live in these very complex, interconnected worlds. That's what a lot of the talk was about. And so... Uh, certainly there will be unintended consequences for removing species. Uh, I guess my provocative question back is, uh, you know, so we, we, we remove a few key species that uh, hunt us or, you know, infect us or whatever. Yes. Um, we're removing tons of other species through other actions. So yes. is it a drop in the bucket or, yes. or you know, or, or do you think they have some yeah. pivotal role? That we I, could sort of I, I think it's a great point. It could be an example, and I am the one who posed this question, of overreaching in terms of what I think humans could actually do to impact the world. And we tend to get 
worried about these, you know, manipulate technology to get rid of some species. But um, species extinction is the normal course of events for all species on this planet anyway. And I say that very guardedly because, yes, I love rhinos and other things that are targets of conservation biology. But we, we have to not, I don't know, think too much of ourselves in these efforts. That when we, If we're pushing something out and it's a virus pathogen or you know, a eukaryote causing a lot of pain, woe, mortality, and morbidity in human populations, the other ethical uh, dilemma is that if we don't do that, and we're not helping ourselves enough. And if we have the technology to do it, then we have a responsibility to use it wisely. So I just feel like we're just going to enter this era now. We're already there. of A bit of a seesaw between technology and what we can achieve. And this is always, you've heard this constantly in even popular culture. If with, with great power becomes a responsibility. How are you going to wield it? So I back away from the question. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to ask Brian... What's the future of SARS-CoV-2? What, what should we expect? So, I mean, two extreme futures would be stasis. It is as it is. We'll get, I, I, think, I, I think, you know, the long COVID thing is a problem, is a significant problem. It's going to continue to be a significant problem. I bet there will be rapid, um, that, you know, there'll be, it's in, I think it's endemic. I don't think we'll ever eradicate it because it's so slippery and transmissible, a virus. But I think there'll be, um, there'll be better and better vaccines. Um, there'll be, uh, as with HIV, you know, development of drugs to deal with the long COVID thing, which is a serious problem, I think. That's, that's, that's optimistic. Pessimistic, there's another big jump. And that's f- fundamental lack of biological understanding. We don't know how that works. I, again, there's huge progress and very clever people working on it, but it's also a very, in quotes, clever virus, you know. So I'm, I'm hoping it's the first of those scenarios. Yeah, but, but could I add something? I mean, this, this is amazing how quickly we are knowing and appreciating this virus, trying to come up with ways to control its spread in this further evolution. And I have a colleague back at Yale, Craig Weiland, just had a paper recently with colleagues about if you could get cells to actually not make the ACE2 protein, then there's nothing there for the virus to bind to. And they are putting it forward, I think it just came out as a paper this week, as an example of just creative thinking about how do you completely just stall out the problem. Now that, as they say, sounds good on paper. I don't know whether that would be effective, because there were certainly many iterations of the miracle drug to stop HIV transmission, and that didn't work either. So as creative as we can be, as much as we can harness technology, I I, I always just give the edge to viruses because they are quite clever in their evolution to find end-arounds. So this is what keeps us employed in our jobs, but uh, this is a very, it it is slippery. And this is a particularly slippery virus. We're not sure what it will do next, but boy, we're trying to be uh, clever and creative to stop it. So I, I want to thank everybody for coming today, especially the students. Um, I think in this discussion, you know, as we're trying to answer questions for you guys, you can see that we, we haven't done a very good job at answering the questions, that there's a lot of research to, to be done, and, and that this is a really exciting uh, time to do this kind of research or life science research in general. Uh, and so I hope this, this helps inspire you to, to, uh, to, to invest some of your life and your studies into life sciences. Um, and so I want to thank the panel too. These are really talented people up here that have volunteered their time. So thank you guys. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, 
visit us online at uctv.tv.